Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going, uh, chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 12. Uh, we're going to take a pretty good-sized chunk of Scripture, so... Uh, um, trying to uh, take a look at this text. And it's a a very important text. There's quite a bit here, but some of the pictures and imageries are familiar and easy to grab a hold of. So that's why we're going to try to read through the section, uh, read through 1 through 26. But uh, as we prepare to do this, I want to tip you off that one of the things that we encounter in this text is a human con- character, uh, a human character trait, or human character traits that uh, we have probably all encountered, and it is something that uh, the gospel wants to turn on its head. And what that trait is, is the characteristic of the inner circle. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I'm sure you are. Uh, Maybe it's called different things. Maybe you've felt it in different circumstances. I can remember uh, moving to Racine, Wisconsin when I was in second grade. Goes a long way back. You probably can't believe I remember that far back. Uh, But in second grade, moving to Racine, Wisconsin, and we moved into a kind of middle-class neighborhood. There were tons of young families and therefore tons of kids. We had a elementary school we walked to, and uh, I was an only child at that time, so I didn't have any help with brothers and sisters or anything like that, not much experience with lots of kids either, and I remember moving in and meeting kids, getting to know people by name, uh, but recognizing right away that there was a a group of kids that kind of everybody else followed. It was kind of an inner circle, I would call. And uh, so if you really wanted to be somebody, if you wanted to really feel included and participate in the decisions and plans and have fun and be all that you wanted to be, you had to get a part of that inner circle. And this is kind of a, kind of a characteristic of human beings and social settings, right? And, and so it took me a while. I was trying to show that I was fun and easy to get along with, wanted to do things for people and wanted to fit in, be just like them so that I could get in the inner circle. And one day I remember them saying, hey, Ed, why don't you come walk with us to school? And I was like, oh, yeah, hey, I'm going to see you guys. There were other guys that were trying to get in and couldn't get in. And I, yeah, I got in. Uh, and so I walked with them to the school and began to feel like I was part of the inner circle. And then I realized something. Oh, man, there's an inner, inner circle. So in that inner circle, there's another inner circle, and, uh, and still you're trying to try to figure out how to get included in that and how to, you feel like you're a part. And I, I'm sure that all of us have experienced something like that. And, and maybe it was when you're in high school or college or if you've been around athletes, not to pick on athletes, but I remember in ninth grade being on the wrestling team and I was always kind of on the outs, and, but there was a couple of cool guys that were great wrestlers and everybody tried to be friends with them. Maybe you're at, at work. Maybe it's in school. You want 
the academic accolades and maybe the smart people really kind of shape things and, and you never really felt like you were a part of the school or in the in crowd. And so you worked hard to, to be in the inner circle. Uh, I think this happens in churches. And it's unfortunate it happens in churches, but we're people and we get together and we do stuff together. And those kinds of characteristics of human behavior happens even in churches. And I I like what uh, C.S. Lewis once said about the inner circle. He said, if we spend our days trying to achieve acceptance in the inner circle, we, when we finally achieve it, we will realize that the joy is short-lived. This seems to be the human experience, that we're trying to be validated. It seems like what that inner circle thing really is all about is trying to find out if we're important, if we mean anything to anybody, if people care about us, if we're worthy of being loved and included and our thoughts and our ideas are really valid and worth taking stock in. And that's all important stuff. That's important in our relationships. And you would think that in a church where God's grace has been poured out on people, that that kind of inner circle stuff wouldn't happen. But unfortunately, it does. And so as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is a new section. As we've been studying Corinthians, we've been studying a lot of uh, situations in the church at Corinth. Paul began the letter with a really high call, an expectation and belief that God is doing something profound in the hearts and lives of the people. Even though they're messed up in so many ways, and they're, they're, they're disobedient in so many ways, Paul was overwhelmed with the optimism of the gospel and the good news. And as we go through Corinthians, I want to con- continually remind us of that power the optimism of the gospel, to change our lives, to make us new. God is up to something in our lives, and it is grand and it is glorious. But there are corrections and instructions that we must hear. And so Paul has talked about many things, divisions in the church, talked about uh, the topic of sex and where it should be. Remember I said I didn't really want to talk about 1 Corinthians, I always avoided preaching 1 Corinthians because it was about sex and relationships and how it should function and being single and then talked about roles of men and women in the church and I thought, wow, I'm going to get in trouble in that area. So I was a little hesitant to do anything in those areas, but when it comes to chapter 12, there is a part of this chapter that I love. It is something that has shaped me. I don't know if you have verses of Scripture that kind of sit in your head that kind of are always there. You always hear them speaking to you. Some of those are if you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Some of those are 
I require. Uh, if you love father and mother and mother and brother and sister and child more than me, you're not worthy of me. I mean, there are some power-packed verses that just kind of are always there reminding me of my relationship with God and how he is ultimately important. Well, one of those passages for me happens to be the one we're going to run into today. And I think it's super important for the life of the church. And it is a hard thing to accomplish because we are humans and we have this inner circle thing that we're always fighting. We always want to make sure that we're a part of the, the church, we're a part of the group, and people should recognize our contribution and our, our place in the church. And then we want to make sure that others warrant their involvement in the church. I'm not saying we do that a lot, but there's always that kind of tension. And Paul is addressing that. Because in Corinth, they were very interested in spiritual gifts. God was at move, uh, on the move in their church. They, God was directing them and guiding them. There were prophetic words. There were miracles of healing. There were manifestations of the Spirit. God was planting the church in a dramatic way. And people in the church who were experiencing those things began to say, well, this shows that God has his eye on me and maybe not on you. This shows that I'm more important to the body than you are. Maybe you should all listen to me and, and all you other people should follow what I say and do what I do. So that becomes a cancer in the church. And Paul, in chapter 12, is beginning to try to address that issue. And he does it in the context of spiritual gifts because that is the, the number one issue that is separating the church. It's, it's kind of identifying the, the, the in-group and the out-group. And it's identifying the really inner group, those who have spiritual gifts of power. So in this chapter, Paul says there is an order for the church. There is a priority for the church. And you must be aware of it. And you must follow it. You must hear out what God's plan and intention is for the church and then live that out. And that's why it's such an important passage for us because we want to live out God's desire, God's will, God's intention for the church in our relationships with one another. So, let's begin by reading this good-sized passage of Scripture. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to read 1 through 26. Now, about, about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributing them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. 
Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body... Though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the Spirit, the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is made up of one part, uh, is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason, uh, it would not be for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unple uh, unpleasurable are treated with special modesty. Uh, unpresentable, excuse me. Are, are treated with special modesty. And while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honorable, honored, every part rejoices with it. So as we look at this passage, you see Paul has a lot going on here. He is talking about how we relate to one another, how there is great diversity in even the gifts that God gives to the church. But that regardless of that diversity, there is a priority on unity. And that unity must be of first importance, must be of first order in the church. And he builds this case by pointing out certain orders for the church. And as we look at this text, I want to uh, highlight some of those. And I'm assuming that you can kind of glance back down and read the scripture and remind yourself of what we're covering. Church order number one is allegiance to the lordship of Christ. 
Paul begins this section talking about spiritual gifts and wanting his brothers and sisters not to be ignorant, but then jumps right into this whole thing about when they were pagans and when they were drawn away to idol worship and that there is some kind of clarification as to how to make a distinction between a good spirit speaking and a bad spirit speaking. If one curses the Lord Jesus, that's a bad spirit. If one honors and proclaims Jesus as Lord, that's a good spirit. And so we're, we're not exactly sure of the context of this, except that in the, in the first century, there were uh, pagan gods and idols and rituals. And it seems like maybe there was some ecstatic speech or prophetic speech kind of in line with what we would see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that in these uh, places of worship that were not built on the truth of Christ, there was these experiences of God communicating. Or not God communicating, but they're believing that the idols communicate. And so now these people become believers, and they're put into the church at Corinth. And there's this emphasis on God speaking through them, God using these miraculous, ecstatic gifts in the congregation. And they're asking the question, how do we know who we should follow and who we shouldn't follow. And this is also a, a situation, a, a, an experience that uh, John and First John spoke about, how you determine who is speaking the truth and who is not. And it really comes down to who are you serving. And so they had to have the recognition that it's probably not the case that there were people in the church cursing Jesus. But probably there was some recognition that they were being challenged by the pagan worship services around them, and they were cursing Jesus. It probably, it could also be that they were uh, ex- recognizing that these other belief systems, these pagan gods, these idols surrounding them were in opposition to Jesus Christ. And what determines whether one is standing right and proclaiming the truth? What determines it is your surrender to Jesus, your proclamation that Jesus is the one and only Lord, the Savior, and that we believe in him, we follow him, we trust him. All spiritual truth and enlightenment comes through our relationship with him. He is the one and only deliverer. That is crucial. That is building block number one when it comes to the church. We do not curse Jesus. We surrender to Jesus. And this still is a bone of contention in our world, is it not? We believe that salvation comes by Jesus alone, and this is constantly bristled against by our culture. But we have to affirm That God has one way of salvation, and it comes through his beloved son, and that salvation is only found in Jesus. And we as a church stand here to proclaim that that is absolutely true. And we not only just proclaim it, we must live it with our lives. We must surrender to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of who we are. What gives validity to who we are as Christians? It's the magnification of Jesus that he is the Lord and Savior of our lives. So building block number one of a church must be that we're 
giving allegiance to Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. And this should define everything else that flows out of us in the church. Paul goes on then, second order is a recognition of our Trinitarian God in the gifts for the church. And you might be thinking that this is an unusual place in which to transition to a Trinitarian God, but it is fundamental to our Christian understanding. And it is something that we should emphasize and teach prevalently because there are many religious beliefs outside of Christianity who have trouble and and accusation against us that we have a belief about three gods or multiple gods or not serving just one god or including other gods. But Paul here grounds the reality of the spiritual gifts. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He grounds the reality of the spiritual gifts in the reality of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is God who is at work in the church. And some even Christian branches say that only the Spirit is around, and they worship the Spirit as if the Spirit is all there is. But that is not the case. It is rejected by the Scriptures, and we see the importance of the Trinitarian understanding of God's work in our lives by this passage, verse 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. The Spirit, the Lord, and different kinds of workings. But all of them, all of them, and in every one, it is the same God, God the Father. This reminds us of Jesus' own words in, in John chapter 14, where John says, where, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter who will be with you, referencing the Holy Spirit, who is given to us for the, the Christian life, for the building up of the church. And then he goes on in chapter 14 to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus is going to come to us. The Holy Spirit will come to us. The Comforter will come to us. But this work is not separated from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus. Jesus is coming to us. It is God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the same chapter, Jesus says in verse 23, John 14, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Paul says one of the most important things that we can build the church on is the reality of Jesus Christ as Lord and the truth that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and he is the foundation of the operation of life in the church. And we cannot miss that. That must be a recognition that the church maintains. Church order number three is a dispense, uh, dis- distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he determines. And this is verses 7 through 11. And here we find that uh, this is where there was some divisions in the Corinthian church. There was some uh, kind of pride and, and showiness that 
Some people were part of an inner group. They were using these legitimate gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the church to set themselves apart, to be divided, and even to make other believers feel like they're, they're less than, they're not part of, they're not as important in the life of the church. How can I say all those things? I can say all those things because of the points that Paul makes from verse 12 through 26. The importance of the unity together. And I've been through a church, two churches that have split over the gifts of the Spirit. Not because the gifts of the Spirit are given, not because of the intent of the gifts of the Spirit, which is good and godly. God gifts his people. God empowers his people for the life of the church. What brings division to a church and damage to the church of Jesus Christ is when we set ourselves up against other believers, when we're more a part of the in crowd and others are left on the outside. And if we begin to understand the gifts of the Spirit in a way that puffs us up or separates us from the people in our community, in our church, we must realize that we're at, at the heart of it, violating the very essence and purpose for which God gave the gifts to the church. It is for blessing and encouragement and building and unity. So if we don't get anything else out of this chapter... I hope that we get the idea that God's heart for the church is that we really be a community together, that we really stand together, that we're for one another, and we reject the normal human behavior of having an inner crowd and an inner inner crowd. But that God's grace turns that upside down. And yes, there is diversity amongst us. God will use us in different ways. And we should be able to celebrate those differences. There is a series of gifts articulated here. The first set of gifts in, uh, in verse 8 are the gifts, the instruction gifts. They're wisdom and knowledge. The second set of gifts are, are gifts of supernatural power, of, of uh, faith and healings and miracles. And the third set of gifts are the inspired utterance gifts, those of prophecy and discerning of prophecies and and the gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues. All of these were gifts in that church that were given by God graciously to build up the church. And the people were taking those gifts and turning it against one another and dividing the church. And this is something that we must be careful of. I do want to affirm that God gives the church gifts. This is not the only list of gifts in the New Testament. There are gifts mentioned in Romans chapter 12, verses eight through, uh, 3 through 8, where there's a listing of gifts. Gifts are mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 and in 1 
Peter 4.11. So there are gifts, and they're not uniform, and they're not all identical, and it's not always in the same priority. But the point that God is wanting us to get is that he gifts the church. He empowers us. Oh, and just, and just look at verse 7, which begins this. Now to each one. I believe that God gives to each one gifts. He brackets this whole section with, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit. Then look at verse 11 at the end. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. There's a sense in which God gives gifts to believers that we're not to be just receiving the blessings and the experiences of the church and not contributing and serving and, and giving of ourselves and letting God use us to benefit the life of the church. God gives each one gifts for the use in the church. But it never should be the place of division. It should never be the place of separating us from super spiritual to mediocre spiritual. We have violated the gifts if we do that. So the third order of the church is there is a distribution of gifts by the Spirit who determines the gifts given, which it says in verse 11. Now, the fourth church order is mutual dependency, is the reality of a healthy church. Mutual dependency is, is made the point in this chapter in the midst of a, a kind of a touchy situation, circumstance of describing spiritual gifts. And, but predominantly, Paul is talking about how we hang together, not how we're different. Though we recognize we're different, but there is unity. And pervasively, there is unity. And Paul uses something that we're all familiar with, uh, probably the most recognized image in the New Testament of the church is that of the body. And it comes from this very poignant passage where Paul says that we as believers are to be together. He's brought us by the Spirit, whether Jew or Gentile or slave or free, male or female. He's brought us together and placed us into the body. Now, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. Uh, if, a foot should say, if a foot should say, I'm not a hand, therefore I don't belong to the body, that, that would be ridiculous. Paul's imagery and picture here is that every part of the body is important. Every part of the body has a distinct role and a distinct purpose, but is valuable. Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Paul profoundly, dramatically shows the importance of one another in the church. Uh, yesterday I was out, um, before I went to a graduation party, I thought, well, I had a big stack of wood in the backyard and uh, vines that I had cut down, and I didn't want to cut them all up and put them in a bag so I thought I'll build a little fire and burn them and so I was burning them away and, and while I was taking those vines one of those vines came and just popped me right in the eye I mean it was a direct hit 
And I mean, my eye was just running and I could hardly see. I was like totally incapacitated. I had to let my wife drive. And, uh, and that was, you know, that's a big thing if you do that. No, I'm just kidding. No, I let her drive. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when a part of your body is hurt, when it gets, when it gets hit or it's painful, you don't have the other parts of your body, like my eyelids saying, oh, well, that's too bad. I wish the eye would just heal up and get over it. You know, no, my eyelid's closing down. I'm trying to, and the tears are coming. The tear ducts are working. Everything's coming together, and we're giving attention and care for that eye, that damaged part, because every single part of the body is important. It is valuable. God made us to be valuable, to be affirmed, to belong. And what we see in the world is the opposite of that. What we should see in the church is this picture of the body being together, caring for one another, supporting one another, giving for one another. We should not be indifferent to the circumstances and situations of one another. We should be caring that we are growing in our relationship with Christ. We are apart together. And God it gifts us, gives, gifts you, gifts me differently, but for the purpose that we would all grow up into the maturity of Christ, to know the love of Christ and the glory of his plan and purpose for us as a people. And then that would be seen and displayed to the world around us. Do we understand the calling we have as his people and as his church? Paul is totally befuddled by the response of the Corinthians in this place because they see the gifting of God as an opportunity to divide rather than seeing the gifting of God as an opportunity to serve. Do you think of your gifts and the ways that God has uh, given you talents and given you spiritual insight and, and gifted you as an opportunity for you to pour into the life of the church for the benefit of brothers and sisters in Christ? Isn't that why we serve? Isn't that why we're here? And, and shouldn't that experience and that, that unity and that love for one another, that unity, shouldn't that be a trumpet to the world around us that Jesus indeed has changed people's lives? That's what Paul longed for for the Corinthians. That's what God longs for for our church. And here we get to my favorite passage, and then I'm running out of time. Church order five is upside-down honor principle for a healthy church. And since this is kind of one of my favorite, I want to read it again. This is verse 21. Through 26, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. You, you hear how important that is? It seems like maybe there were people in the Corinthian church who were saying, I don't really care about you. You're not important to this church. We can get along without you. That is not the heart of a church. That is not a heart of the people that God has restored and brought to himself. We are to be together. 
We are to be shaping one another and growing one another and maturing one another. But we don't do it in a way that shoves people out. We do it in a way that invites people in to know the Savior in a life-transforming way. And it seems like there were those who didn't care about people in the Corinthian church. I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our, get this, mark this one down, verse 24. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. That's pretty radical. That's it. That, that's the inner in-group. They don't need special treatment. We need to flip that thing upside down because it's not the in-crowd that needs the attention. It's the out-crowd that needs the attention. And if the church is really carrying out the gospel and the kind of love and grace that Jesus Christ was planting into the hearts of his people in the church... We will be inviting the ones that maybe don't get the attention to receive the attention. Maybe the ones that are weak and struggling, those are the ones we rally around. And we can ignore. Ignore might be be strong, but I think that's Paul's point. We can ignore the strong. We give attention to those on the outside and those who are weak and struggling, those who we want to have become part of the life of the church because Jesus inevitably can take care of his people. And so the strong are empowered to give of themselves to the weak. And the strong, because of their relationship with Christ, because he has given all by becoming uh, despised and rejected and laying down his life, he shows us a model how we, as his people, who have been changed and transformed and empowered, be lifted up, we can give of ourselves to those who are broken and downtrodden and, and abandoned and feeling rejected. We don't need the attention on us. We need the attention on those who are in need. And the church violates the spirit of the community of Christ when we hold up an inner group. You remember, uh, you probably have seen or heard about that, that old uh, Special Olympics event that took place in 1976. It was in Washington State, and, and they made a commercial out of it. Uh, you probably have seen it where, where uh, at the Special Olympics, it was a 100-yard dash, and uh, uh, they, they, all the kids lined up, and the guns sounded, and they all took off, and, and one of those kids, maybe 10 feet into the race, tripped and fell and skinned his knee and started to cry. And there were three or four kids that saw that kid fall, stopped the race and went back and helped him, picked him up, and all of them went across the finish line together. And 
I don't know if you've seen the commercial, but at, at what happened was the stadium applauded, and there was long applause for that race and the kindness of those kids to lay down their race that they were running so that they could help uh, a friend or somebody that was running in the race beside them. I don't say that that's a picture of everything that the church should do because we are called to run a race. We are charged to go in the direction to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. But I do think it's important that that kind of love and concern for a fellow racer grab the world's attention. So what does that tell us? I think it's part and parcel to the picture of the gospel. It's a part and parcel to the picture of the church. That the church is not about performance and running over people. It's about gathering up people. Gathering up people who have broken lives, who have sin in their lives, who have rebellion against God, who think that they're finding their answers to life and something other than Christ and something other than uh, relationship with God and, and gathering them up and bringing them into the fellowship and headed down the road together. That's Paul's heart as he writes these words. The priority of the church is to surrender to the lordship of Christ, to live under God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and to be true and, and right in our understanding of who God is and the gifts he gives. And then that the Holy Spirit does gift us, and we're not all the same. We're not all uniform little soldiers. We're different, and God loves variety, and he's made us differently, but he's gifted us so that we can contribute to the life of the church. And then there is this mutual dependency. There is this connection that we must demonstrate and churn the world's ideas on its head and honor the weaker, the downtrodden, the hurt, and Christ will be magnified because that's exactly what Christ did. He left his home in glory, came into this broken world, and became broken himself so that he could bring life and restoration to each one of us. And if you want to receive that life, that life, come, trust in Jesus. Learn of him. Follow him. He brings newness to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace and love and restoration and healing. Lord, that you give us value. You give us our identity. We are important, and you call us into a church, into a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ where we can love one another, where we can celebrate with one another, where we can share life together. And Lord, I pray that as we think about the truths of 1 Corinthians 12 and the life that we share, that we will grow in our living together and our loving together and that Jesus will be demonstrated and magnified to the world around us, to the city of Columbia, because of our love.
because of what you are doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.